Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. This is episode 109. It's James Morrison. Here we go. My guest today is James Morrison. James Morrison is, by anybody's standard, a virtuoso in the true sense of the word. Besides the trumpet, this multi-instrumentalist also plays piano, all the brass, saxophones and double bass. He's toured the world many times over, a true international jazz artist who's also played with some of the greatest jazz musicians to ever live. He's won countless awards, he's a doctor of music, a professor of music. He has his own music academy, he flies planes, he races cars, he builds houseboats, just Google him. But did you know he played trumpet in a punk band? Played a gig whilst almost dying from a venomous spider bite? Do you know why he stands in a certain spot on the stage? How he can effortlessly move from one instrument to the other? Does he still practice? These are a few of the things we talked about. Some of these things he's never been asked before. So ladies and gentlemen, please take your seat. I'm truly honoured to bring to you this chat with the master blower, the one, the only, Mr. James Morrison. All right, I think we're rolling. Mr. James Morrison, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thanks so much, man. Um, it took a, took a while to get us to this point right now. It did. It <laughs> hasn't been easy. <laughs> but we're here. Look, this is one of those things where you go, someone doesn't want us to do this podcast, but here we are. <laughs> you know, we live in this this um this time of this amazing amazing technology, and um people design these this software, which is supposed to be really ease of use. And the more times I use it, the more times I get frustrated with it. So I might, I might, chuck, <laughs> might chuck this one away and move back to the other one. <laughs> whatever works. Yeah, whatever works. Um, now, what I thought I'd start with is um, um, COVID and, and what the impact of COVID had on you, what you had lined up um, before COVID hit and what kind of got blown out and um, how things are starting to kind of rebuild now as things are settling down a little bit. Mm. Well, it was very sudden. Uh, you know, one minute e- everything was full steam ahead and it was virtually overnight. Uh, as soon as they shut the borders internationally, I'd just come back in from uh, a tour. I'd just come back in from Germany. And then I had, I couldn't even tell you, but I had at least four trips to Europe in the coming months after that and um, a couple of trips to New Zealand, uh, two trips to the States, all just cancelled, everything cancelled, all tours cancelled, concerts, everything. So it was, um, yeah, everything just stopped. And then we thought it was going to be international. And then shortly afterwards the the state borders closed Mm. and suddenly you couldn't go anywhere for a gig. And then it didn't matter anyway because there weren't any gigs to go if you did go there. Um, All the venues shut then, you know, and so uh, 
yeah, it was just very sudden. There was just suddenly nothing, and uh, it was very strange. I mean, I've been in the business for how many years now? I, you know, I, I don't know, um, a lot, 40-something years, and um, touring and playing, and uh, nothing ever has done that. I think I lost a gig once because a war started somewhere. You know, and we, we couldn't get that. So I had a gig in Argentina and the Falklands War started. Oh. <laughs> so the gig was cancelled. But, I mean, apart from something like that, it didn't matter. All the other gigs were everything else was on. So just really strange that that um, what happened just stopped everything. And um, and and so suddenly. And then at first we thought, oh, wow, this this could go on for a month. You know, it was the, I remember thinking that, thinking, wow, this, this is not like a couple of weeks. This could be a month. <laughs> and then it was, and then it was two months, and it was, and then we said, no, this could be three months. Then people said things might not be open again or really back to normal until October, and we all went, that's really like that's just catastrophic. And of course, now if things had opened up in October, we'd be throwing a party. Yeah. It's January, and uh, and there's this still probably they're saying a year mm-hmm. could be before international travel is back. So I mean. You know, uh, it's uh, and so much of my work is touring overseas, so that's just all off. Um, and even if Australia opened its borders, which it's unlikely to do with what's going on overseas, COVID-wise, but even if they did, I mean, would you go to the UK for a tour right now, or to Spain, or to you know, just to just about anywhere? Like it's it's crazy. So, um, or to the states. So uh, yeah, so that that was that was a big effect, and even then back home here. I've done since last March five gigs, and two of those were at the Opera House. Uh, one without an audience was their streaming thing, and another one was the Don Burroughs Memorial, yeah. which we had an audience in the room, but not, of course, nothing like a full audience. And then I've done another three gigs, which have been, um, you know, limited audiences. And um, uh, the problem is, I know some sectors, thankfully, great. But some sectors of the music industry are coming back, you know, if they're not back to full strength, but they're happening again. If you normally play in pubs or you normally play in, you know, restaurants or small clubs or something, a lot of that is happening again, depending on where you are, of course. Mm. Um, but so much of my work is concert halls and things, well, they're not, they're not open yet, you know. Um, and, uh, and if they are, they've got things like 50% house they're allowed to have. Uh, and for promoters putting on a concert, you know, if I'm going to come with my band and play a concert, usually they 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 work on a break even. I do know one told myself of about sixty percent. So at fifty percent, they're just not going to put anything on. Yeah. So as far as things coming back, the international's not back, and most of my Australian playing is not back. So basically, I'm still not doing anything. Um, so uh, what I did do most of the year is um, the academy. My academy was still going. We ran that. Um, did, you, did, you have, did you have to do a fair bit of that from home, though? Because you wouldn't have been able to get there. I spent a lot of the year down there. Oh, right. I went okay. there. So I couldn't come back to Sydney because if I did, I wouldn't be able to get back into South Australia. Okay. So I spent a lot of the year in South Australia at the Academy um, through until nearly Christmas, actually. And that allowed me to, um, to, to run the Academy. Um, a lot of the faculty were in Melbourne. They couldn't get out for a lot of the years, so they were online. Students mostly, we had some students got stuck somewhere else across a border, but most of them were in South Australia, able to come in, and they just isolate for 14 days, and then they were able to go to classes. So in South Australia, we were able to have classes with, with players in the room. So that was great. Um, but 
the whole uh, situation with universities and everything. Now, not that we had a huge proportion of international students, but we're under the umbrella of the University of South Australia. That's who, you know, confers our degrees and so on. And they had a lot of international students. They've been hit very hard. And so um, their ability to have third-party providers like us running courses is extremely limited now. In fact, they're stopping most of them. So it's really hit that extremely hard too, the university sector. So all around. Um, But Mm. I did fix the gate. I did (laughs) clean the garage. I then built a loft in the garage, and then that wasn't enough. I said, all right, I'll build a houseboat. I've been talking about building a houseboat for years because it was never going to happen. When would I ever get the time? Now. Um, and there've been some interesting yeah, things pop up, you know, around the world musically. I'm just recording something tomorrow for Gordon Goodwin with his big band, um, you know, and I've recorded a couple of other bits and pieces here and there to go on people's albums and to do things. So that sort of stuff can still happen. Mm. I'm actually sitting in my studio in Sydney right now, so I can just go downstairs and you know fire up the gear and uh, and record or mm. you know send people things. So, but in the jazz world. I got to say, as far as making records, people say, "Oh, you can make a living still, and you can make recordings." You go, "No, you don't make a living out of recordings as a jazz player. You make recordings so people can hear your music, yeah. so they'll come to your gigs where you make a living." <laughs> yeah. So um, it's nice to, you know, make some music and spread it around. But as far as actually, uh, you know, career-wise, so it's a really interesting time. Mm. Um, quite challenging in a lot of ways. I got to say, one of the weird things you rightly sort of ask about, you know, things coming back or not and, and how's career, and I've talked mainly about that, you know, and making a living, but there's the whole other side to it. My life for decades, for, for most of my 80%, 90% of my life has been get up and go somewhere to play and make music with people in front of people, you know, for that thing that happens in a room when you play, and that's what you do. And also a lot of it's travel. I've traveled all my life. I pretty much each day I get up and go, where am I going today? You know, where where did I wake up and where am I going? So it's really sort of like having a rug pulled out from under you to wake up and go, I'm where I was yesterday and where I was the day before that and where I am all the time mm. and I'm not going anywhere. And it's not about going for a trip. It's about that means I'm not playing because yep. I've got to go somewhere to play to someone. And so it becomes quite weird now to think about. It's been long enough now that when I think about playing in front of people like the sort of gigs that i would normally do it kind of almost is like i'm going yeah but is that real or do i just imagine that <laughs> or do i really do i really do that you know and um it's 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 really interesting there are other things too which i'm sure we'll talk about you know to do with how your chops are and how your playing is yeah, absolutely um yeah I've, I've heard some interesting things have happened there oh cool because my next question was going to be what what's the week in the life of james morrison but i, th- I think you've um you've kind of You've kind of answered that. Um, well, yeah, at the moment, university is on break. Um, yeah. They go back in March, so uh, a week in the, in the life at the moment is um, get up, strap the tool belt on, pick up a hammer or a saw, <laughs> and keep building the houseboat. <laughs> have, you, have you always been kind of handy with the tools? You'd have to be yeah. kind of, oh, I was going to say, you'd have to be careful of your fingers and you don't give them an extra whack. <laughs> yeah, you do have to watch out for that. I did drop a piece of wood on my foot, which wasn't good, All right. but... You know, you don't play the trumpet with your foot, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, lucky you're not a drummer, eh? Yeah, it'd be the hi-hat foot if, uh, yeah, if right. I was. Yeah, yeah. Not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So before we get into that sort of nuts and bolts, that kind of stuff, um, I just want to know who your early musical influences were and um, was there a moment when you heard music 
hang on, let me just sort of rephrase that. Was there a moment when you realised that music was going to be your career or was it just a case of like being right into the music and wanting to play all the time and then all of a sudden that moment coming a bit later where you saw that people were getting paid and then you realised that you could do this for a living? Um, the, the way it happened was when I was seven, I decided that I wanted to play the trumpet and go around the world playing the trumpet okay. for people. That was as simple as that was that idea. Let's go around the world and play the trumpet to people. And, um, and that was that. You don't think at seven about making a living or a career. You just think, what am I going to do? And that's what I'm going to do. And so I did. And I still am, except for this year. And, uh, <laughs> and the idea that you could make a living out of it was never really a question. It wasn't like I realised that one day or anything. I just um, I don't recall choosing to be a musician. I say to people often, um, you don't choose to be a musician. You discover you are one. Mm. Um, you know, it, and and so um, uh, I started working. I mean, I was working nightclubs when I was thirteen. So you know, I just started high school. I was working nightclubs. So. Um, you know, it was, and then I was on the road from 16. So there was no sort of like, oh, when will I choose to make this a career? I had a career before I'd finished school, mm. you know. So and I never really did have that moment where you go, I'm going to leave school now and get a job. I was working nights and going to school in the daytime. They just overlapped. And then what was a great blessing was when school stopped. Oh, great, I can sleep in a little bit and um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and and go to the gig. And so, um, yeah, it just, it just, yeah, there was, there was no moment other than that one. I remember when I was seven, when I said, oh, I'm going to go around the world and play the trumpet to people. So when did you start to discover the business side of it then? And was there managers or band leaders that, um, that were around that showed you that, or did you, you know, once you realized this will be my career and money's going to sort of start coming in, did you start seeking out the business side of things? Well, really the way it happened, I mean, with that working in nightclubs at 13, so I was getting paid 20 bucks, mm. I remember, to play then. That was an enormous amount of money. Firstly, $20 when I was 13, it's, it's 45 years ago, mm. so it was more money than it is now. Um, but more to the point, for a 13-year-old, you got, I got pocket money from uh, you know parents, that was two bucks a week. And suddenly I was making $20 a night. So if I worked three nights, I had $60. I don't know what dad was making, but you know what I mean? Like, um, I don't know what the average wage was 45 years ago. But as a 13-year-old, making $60 a week, I, I was rich, you know. Well, what would I have to spend it on? I didn't have to pay rent or I was 13, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had that feeling like, oh, this is easy. So I didn't really think about it. And then as things picked up, when I started touring when I was 16, again, relatively speaking, I was making more money than any of my peers. And so, um, and then I started my own band. And by the time I was um, 19, I had a band on the road, you know. And so the business side of things wasn't so much thinking about how to make a living or anything like that. That seemed easy. Mm -hmm. The business side was managing gigs, making sure you had everything in place and had the right band and, you know, had all the arrangements in place. And I was lucky I got a manager when I was only 18. Um, that's one of the things that I notice is the biggest difference. It's funny. Sometimes people talk about Australian jazz and how does it vary to, you know, jazz in Germany or jazz in the U S and my answer to that is always 
the music itself is so individual. I mean, what is Australian jazz? I mean, take two players here. Take, um, you know, Scott Tinkler and myself. Really different players, uh, both Australians. So are we playing Australian jazz? And then we could take someone in the States who sounds much more like me and someone, say, in Germany who sounds much more like Scott. So is he playing German jazz? You know, and, and the, the answer is jazz is more individual than a country. But having the reason I say that is having said that, the way the business is conducted, yes, that's by country. There's an Australian jazz scene and the way business is done here, and that is quite different to how the business scene is in America, which is different to how it is in Europe. And one of the biggest differences is you won't find a successful jazz musician in America who doesn't have a manager, not one. And if you look at Australian jazz musicians here, find me one who does have a manager. <laughs> like it's always the opposite. Like they're a handful. Right. Like seriously, I know a lot of jazz musicians, probably half a dozen have managers. A bunch of others use agents. It's not the same thing at all. And then heaps of them just look after themselves. The vast majority just look after their own careers. That's unheard of overseas, particularly in the United States. So that side of things, when you say honing in on the business, I had a manager from the age of 18. Right. And, um, you know, and um, so that was completely different. So there was this treating your career as a thing, like as, as an entity. You would say, okay, what are we doing with the career now? as opposed to who I'm going to play with next week and what am I going to play. That's that's stuff I would think about. But you had this this management, you know, um, thinking about that and uh, and thinking about um, when albums should be made. Most people in Australia make an album when they've got something they want to play or record. But for me, albums were strategically planned by someone working with a record company saying it would be good to put out this kind of album in, you know, nine months' time and then it should come out here and blah, blah, blah and all that. That doesn't mean that I didn't have... Musical freedom, I did. I said, they say, what would you like to do? And I'd say, I still do, oh, I've got half a dozen ideas. And they go, okay, let's do number three first. That's a good plan career-wise now. So all this other stuff was being worked on. And, um, you know, that's borne out, I guess, in the fact that career-wise, um, things have gone extremely well, you know, and I've been I, – I spend a lot of my time touring overseas, taking my own bands overseas, mm. Um and uh, that's much more common now. But when I started doing that, I was the only one, that's for sure, because everywhere I went and played, they said, you're from where? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Seriously, no, nobody else was out there doing it. Yeah. So um, not like that as a regular thing, as like part of your gigs. You know, of course, people had gone on tours and done things. But, um, yeah, it was, so it was, it was, I think, that early management and early treating the career of a jazz musician much more like it would be treated in the United States than how it's often treated in Australia. That made a big difference. So who saw that first then from the States? So where, where did that so-called model, how did that so-called model get get to Australia and get to you? Did you have an, was your, was your um, manager from the US, did they kind of know that? No, that no, system? no, they weren't jazz managers. The first managers okay. I had were, and there, there are very few jazz managers in Australia. Okay. Uh, the first management I had um, looked after Tommy Tico. His name was Ken Lang. He looked after Tommy Tico and looked after things like that. He's the sort of guy you'd expect to be looking after the three tenors, you know, that kind of thing. And um, he saw me uh, play somewhere and um, decided, you know, spoke to me, came to me and said, here's a, you know, here's a young guy who's a, a – and Tommy Tico liked me and I guested with his orchestra. So I think that's how the connection came. 
And um, Ken said to me, you know, you need management. Do you want me to manage you? And I said, yep, great. Because uh, I could see that I needed a whole lot of organisation for gigs to happen. And I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to organise the music, not the flights and not the, you know, hotels and all the stuff and so uh, and deal with contracts and all that. So he started doing that. And then um, I ended up getting after him a, uh, a manager from Europe who was a jazz manager and was experienced in that, had come to Australia from Switzerland and was used to managing jazz musicians who toured internationally. And that's when things really took off, I guess, in the the sort of just after the mid-'80s, about 87, I started touring internationally seriously. Um, so I'd been overseas by then. I'd been with Don Burroughs and done some other things but didn't, didn't have an international career. I think that's a point that is sometimes lost on people in the industry in Australia, when I say in the industry, I'm talking specifically about the jazz scene, the difference between having some gigs overseas or putting on a tour overseas or putting on a, several tours overseas and actually having an international career. They are different. Um, one, you have to keep stoking. If you want to keep doing tours, you've got to put on another tour. You've got to find, get a, a grant to do it or a sponsor or, you know, if you can get enough good paying gigs, wonderful, you know, and, and put it together. You've got to keep doing that as opposed to having an international career where the gigs just come in like they would if you're in Australia, you know, I, I mean, requests come in and you work them out and you, um, you know, just how you would do gigs anywhere. Um, so uh, I ended up with an international career sort of from the late eighties, um, which is well, it's a long time now. It's more than 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Now the the difference between the jazz manager and, and the, the other manager that you had, um, what's the specific set of, what's the skill set that that guy has? Does does they just know okay. the different? They know the different venues or the different promoters. Yeah, yeah, they have different Jack contacts. Kind of the contacts. So that first manager was able to get me into concert halls. Yep, and large clubs, meaning clubs as in not not jazz clubs, but large clubs. You know, like that have entertainment venues, um, like casinos and things. You know, and into uh, television. And so I would be a regular guest on the midday show, you know, just as an, as a musical guest. I'd be the only instrumentalist. You know, they had singers on all the time, but no one else playing instruments um, as regular guests. And then you end up, you know, guesting on Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. And, you know, you become sort of on television. People start to know you in a different way. But I did a lot of television in Germany too, um, which really helped becoming known there um, on a lot of different music shows they have there. So he had those sort of contacts where they're interested in jazz players because as I was presented, say, on the midday show in, in Australia, they'd say I'm a jazz musician. But who would say that any Tonight Show or Midday Show or any show in Australia was a jazz show? You know, mm. there were some. Don, Don Burroughs had the Burroughs collection on the ABC. But you don't need to be on that once. You know, to be a regular guest on, on TV shows, they weren't jazz shows. Whereas in Germany, they had music shows that centred around certain styles of uh, music. And so he had the manager would have contacts there. He'd have contact with all the best venues that present jazz um, around Europe. You're not just talking a country here, you're talking you know, a number of countries and all the festivals. Um, people might imagine that if you want to go and play at Montreux Jazz Festival or at the North Sea Jazz Festival, you know, you send them a demo tape or, you know, or whatever. Or, 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 but, but the way you actually get the good gigs there, when I say the good gigs, you can get a gig there. Um, and it's wonderful that you can. And I know a number of school bands that go and play at Montreux, 
You know, they have a section where they invite school bands from around the world to play, and you apply for that and send them a tape and send them or whatever, and you know, and uh, and 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 get into that. It's great. But if you actually want to be an artist booked on the festival um, to play on the main stage, you've got to have people in the know. You've got to be connected through your record company. Um, there was a, there were a number of years there were, for, for instance, Montreux. If you weren't with Warner, they weren't going to put you on anyway because they were a sponsor of the festival. Right. You know, so there's all sorts of connections and things. So having the right manager makes a huge difference there. And they do all sorts of things business-wise that um, that a lot of musicians would not be aware of and certainly wouldn't want to get involved in. There's stuff like what you should, what's your billing like? I didn't even know what that meant. I thought the bill was what you paid when you'd eaten in a restaurant. <laughs> um, you know, And they talk about, like, you know, um, uh, that mattered. If you were billed in a certain way at Montreux, then he could get you onto the Nice Festival, Antibes, um, Lucano, uh, and so on, you know, if you were billed a certain way at Montreux. See, what musician's going to be thinking of that? I wasn't thinking of that and going, oh, does it matter where my name is on the poster? He'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, your name needs to be here on the poster so we can do these festivals. I'm going, really? It works like that? And that's how it did back then. Now it's more how many likes you've got on, fa- you know, on Facebook <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or Instagram. But it's still a system. It's still a system. It's not just how you play. Because imagine if it was just how you play, how many great players do we mm. both know who don't have international careers, mm. you know, or who can't get, get you know, um, onto the, you know, booked by those festivals on the main stage. Uh, so it's not just about how you play. Of course, you've got to be able to come up with the goods once you get there. Just having your name on a poster won't do it. But there are lots of players who can play wonderfully who don't enjoy the, the same career as some others. And one of the things is that, management and understanding how it works so um yeah there's a lot, a lot of that goes on i met uh nessie ertigan who started atlantic records and ended up heading wea which is warner electra and atlantic uh his brother armored ertigan ran electra and they uh, got under the wing of, of warner and um he's the guy that started the modern jazz quartet i mean he put that together uh just amazing history he did when i met him he said uh you know, what would you like to record? Well, who would you like to play with? And it was a matter of the next album I did, I said, let's record it live at Montreux. And he said, yep. And I said, um, it'd really be great to play with Buster Williams and Al Foster, who were the bass and drums for Herbie Hancock at the time and his acoustic band. And he said, great, yep, we'll give them a night off from Herbie. I'll get them and come, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what jazz trumpet player from Australia is going to be doing that? <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I think I think you I think everyone's got the the, the the sort of the picture there that the right management makes a huge huge difference, mm. and um, and they just have to, you know, the right manager coming along and want being interested in taking on an artist is just if they think that the artist is going to be able they're going to be able to do something with that artist you know this um, whatever it is that their specialty is because there are different types of managers. Another great old friend of mine was Larry Clothier, an agent based in New York, a manager and also an agent. He booked me on one of my first big gigs out of there. I went on a three-month tour with um, Cab Calloway's orchestra as a guest soloist. He booked me for that when he met me. And uh, he ended up um, managing Roy Hargrove, who sadly we lost not so long ago. But... um, I'd see Larry around the world every to where we bumped into each other, where Roy was playing and I was playing. And I met Roy when he was 17. And when Larry took him on, I said to him, I said, this is good. Because he was a 17-year-old kid, you know, mm. great player, amazing musician. But he was with Larry and I said, stay with Larry. This is good. This will work. And, of course, it did. He became, you know, um, a huge artist on the international scene. Mm. 
You spoke earlier about, you know, getting onto TV. And the first time I ever saw you, heard of you, was was on Hey Hey Saturday and when I was still living in New Zealand. Wow. Because, um, yeah, Hey Hey was, was the um, the show that I used to watch and, and I used to watch it particularly to watch um, Darren Ferrugia play drums, being a drummer myself. And, yeah, um, yeah and often, you know, you, I'd see you on the show, so that's when I first sort of found out about James Morrison. But can you remember the first time you ever did a live TV show, how you felt, how you prepped for it? How it went? I remember thinking it was odd that you were playing to lots of people but you couldn't see them. I'd never done that before. Normally you looked uh-huh. around the room and if you were playing to 50 people, mm. you were playing to 50 people. If you are playing to 2,000, you could see 2,000 people. And here you were playing in a TV studio and they might have 70 or 80 people sitting in the audience or even 100, but not many. And yet you're playing to tens of thousands you know, or hundreds of thousands with hey, hey. And you go, but I can't see them. And there's no feedback from them. There's no vibe from them. So I remember looking at the camera thinking, I've got to remember I'm playing to a lot of people here and how that feels because that does feel different to playing to a small number of people. And, um, yeah, that was a strange sensation at first that 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 camera represented a whole lot of audience. And... um, and also the way TV works, it's very, very fast. It's very, very, you know, it's not like a concert um, where you often can take time. Mm. Everything's everything's to the second. And hey, hey, well, that's not an ordinary TV show anyway. That was mayhem. <laughs> I remember talking to someone once who said, oh, but that's all put on, right? It's a properly run TV show and they make it look crazy. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I said, no it's completely nuts. It's out yeah. of control. And um, when it looks like Dickie Nee is interrupting Daryl, he is. Daryl has no idea what he's going to say or when he's going to pop up or John Blackman or anyone else. It's all crazy. And when people interject, like, um, you know, Wilbur or whoever, it's real. They're interjecting. Mm. And uh, I remember when they tried to do Hey, Hey in the States, they did some episodes for me, which were great. And the Americans loved it. And some producers over said, this show is great. You know, you guys are, wow, this is really different. Let's make some episodes here. Let's do some American TV. And Daryl said, great. And then when they asked to see a script and how, you know, we want to know how you guys work, Daryl said, there isn't one. They said, well, what are you doing? He said, we're just making it up. He said, you're improvising on television? He said, yeah, well, what about the head on the stick or what about that guy? And he said, oh, you know, John Blackman. He said, no, they just speak when they want to. And they said, but we can't have, like, people randomly interrupting the host. And he said, well, that's how we do it. And so the whole thing fell over. He couldn't make do it in America because they just wow. couldn't cope with that. And the reason I say that or spend so much time saying that is, that's so jazz. Like, that was jazz television. <laughs> now, I want to ask you about, you know, like I've seen, uh, you were talking earlier about the, the couple of live streams that you did, the Don Burrows thing and then the, the live at the Opera House, the, the stream. I was taking particular note of where you were standing in the room. Um, when you enter a concert hall or, or a room, a venue, and you've got your trumpet, do you seek out a place in the room on that stage which sounds the best for you with that trumpet in your hand? Do you know what I'm saying? You, are I you looking you're saying, for the- Look, you're mm. very close. I mm. do seek out a spot. I'm actually really particular about where everything is on the stage. When I set up my mm. band um, and even the angle of the piano, you know, like how it's rotated and which oh, way right. the drummer's facing and – you know, everything's not just sort of, oh, he faces the front, sometimes a bit of an angle. I, I really, there's a feeling you get. It's not just about sound. 
sound is definitely a big part of it, but there's a feeling in the room. Um, and over many years, I guess I've honed it. I w- would love one day maybe to, um, you know, study it or have someone who knows about such things study it mm. uh, with me and find out what's going on. But I've experimented over the years. And um, if you move things around on the stage and keep the sound just as good or even just the same, you know, if you've got an amplified sort of band, then it's not going to make too much difference. People are hearing it out of the sound system. You can change the feeling in the room enormously and hence what the audience reaction is going to be. And I've watched people playing their hearts out and people are responding, but not great, you know, not, not too much, like sort of politely. And I've said, I remember after one set, I said to a great guitarist one night, he said, man, I'm working hard. He said, the audience is a bit dead. I said, just step over here and face that way and move that. There was a thing and a a little other thing he had there, a stool. I said, move that over here, stand here. He said, really? For the next set. And, of course, it was chalk and cheese. It all took off and everyone. And he said, what's that about? And I said, I don't know. Maybe it's feng shui. I don't know anything about feng shui (laughs) other than it's like to do with, you know, where things are in a room. I just know that there's a sort of a an energy when you're on stage or how you connect with an audience, and it's to do with your sound. Of course, if you face sideways, your sound doesn't go out, but it's more than that. It's something about how you address the audience, and piano is a big one. People just mm. think pianos on the stage randomly or where they fit conveniently with the band, and sometimes I go, oh, no, don't put the piano like that. Um, you're going to get such a better uh, connection with the audience if we put it a certain way. And then you watch the great pianists, um, of jazz history, and particularly ones that play for large audiences a lot, say like Oscar Peterson, you know, his trio, always playing in concert halls. And really particular, I watched Oscar do that, really particular about where the piano is, the angle that it's on, you know, um, where the lid's pointing. And it's not just straight out at the audience and everything. And it's about, it's about how the keyboard presents to the audience and everything. You get it all right. See, I walk on the stage with a trumpet and I just stand there and go, this is a good spot. And it's not necessarily front and centre. Depends, and that changes depending on who's in the band and how big the band is. And, um, mm. you know, symphony orchestra, there's a spot I need to be, and it just doesn't work in any other spot. So when you, you, you just said then you walk out there with your trumpet, do, do you give your trumpet a blow there and have a listen, or do you just oh, it's just like that If we're doing a sound check, yeah, occasionally you get to a gig and you don't get a chance to play first. Say it's a festival yep. and there's a number of bands on, you just walk on after the last band. Yep. But um but if I, if I can, yes, absolutely, we have a play, get the whole band to have a play and see how it feels and maybe move some things around mm. uh, and just get the right spot. But, uh, yeah, it's it's quite important. A, there's a feeling you get. And I, I, I remember the first time I saw anyone do anything like that it was a very long time ago. I was uh, very young and I didn't understand it yet. And I thought it was really weird. I mean, I have to preface this by saying this is quite extreme. But Roger Woodward walked out to play solo piano at the opera house and he walked out, the audience applauded, he took a bow, he sat down at the stool, he put, lifted his hands about to play the keyboard and he stopped and he stood up and walked off again and we thought, what on earth has happened? And these two guys came out to, you know, stage hands and they moved the piano about three inches just across the stage and angled it a bit, you know, turned the, the, the um, tail of the piano away from the audience. And then he came back out, sat down and played an amazing concert. And I thought, is that all just for effect? Is that just theatre? Is that just drama? And many years later when I got to know him and got to talk to him, he said, no, no, it wasn't quite right. And I said, I know what you mean now. Absolutely. Although I've never seen anyone stop a concert and move a piano three inches. 
But then again, <laughs> he was a uh, perfectionist and uh, and quite extreme in many ways. Wow. That's cool. Cool answer. Mm. Now, regarding um, injuries and ailments that you might have, say, for regarding – I've just got this picture of um, Dizzy Gillespie in my, in my head with the big puffed-up cheeks, you know, the Dizzy Gillespie cheeks. Yes. Um, and it made me think when I was, you know, doing some research for this and, and – have you, when when you've gone to blow a trumpet, blown a little bit too hard and, and injured your cheek or injured something inside your mouth or a muscle or a, um, do you know what I mean? Yep. You- Look, I've, I've had uh, early on, <laughs> this was an interesting one. I was playing in a band, it was called the Black Slacks. I don't know who named it, but there was a song called Black Slacks. And um, it was led by two guys, Steve Bryan, great jazz guitarist, and um, and Peter Adoherty, who was a, a guitarist, but he also played bass. And one day Peter said, oh, I'm leaving the band. And I don't know, I must have been about 14 or 15, and we were gigging quite regularly. And he said, I'm going to go and start a punk rock band. And I said, what's that? You know, because at that stage punk was new. And so this is many, many years ago. And he said, oh, it's a type of rock, you know, I'm going to do. I said, really? Okay, have fun. And he went and started a band. It was called Mental as Anything. <laughs> and um, so fast forward a few years, they're hugely famous, and I bumped into Peter somewhere, in an airport or somewhere. I said, oh, man, it's great, like all your success. It's fantastic. Wow, who would have thought, you know, it's great. And he said, hey, why don't you come play with us? And I said, yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, what? I'm going to come and play trumpet with a punk rock band, and I did. And um, the sound man got a microphone it was just a you know a normal sort of um, fifty eight, sure fifty eight, but he he taped it into the end of the trumpet like like a bug mic, you know. But it was a full size microphone. He gaffed it into the bell of the trumpet. <laughs> I'm going, what are you doing, man? He said, oh, I'm just going. There's no music. There's no mic stands, man. We don't use mic stands. You got to. And I said, but that's going to sound awful. And he said, so. <laughs> and I thought, that, um, and I went to play. Don't upset the sound man either. Don't upset the sound man. Uh, don't upset the sound man. <laughs> but the band was so loud. I mean, this was punk at its height. You know what I mean? It was so loud, and they're playing this heavy stuff, and I'm having a great time, screaming away on the trumpet. But there was two things. One was I was blowing so hard to hear myself, and two was the bell. Bell was partly blocked with this microphone mm. and this tape. It was actually blocking the bell, blocking the air, that I burst a blood vessel. And, uh, yeah, somewhere up in my head. And so I got a bleeding nose immediately, and it also kind of went down the back of my throat. And uh, so I'm spraying blood everywhere because I'm still blowing. (laughs) I'm wearing a white skivvy. Now, does anyone remember what a white skivvy (laughs) is? Because that was kind (laughs) of hip back then for a jazz player to have a white skivvy, you know, a roll neck. And um, and, uh, it's perfect. With blood going everywhere, and I've got a white skin yep. on. I mean, it looked like I'd been stabbed or was being shot. And of course, the crowd went off. They loved yep. it. I passed yep. out. I fainted. And I'm <laughs> lying on the stage, and a roadie came on and dragged me off, and the crowd's all cheering. And the manager actually said afterwards, because he was going, Who's this guy? And Peter's an old friend of mine. What's he going to do? He's going to play trumpet. Trumpet, what's going on? He said, Don't worry about it, man. It's cool. <laughs> anyway, after I did it, the manager said, That's awesome. He said, we're keeping that in. That guy's got to come on the road with us and do that every night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's best punk, best punk rock show they'd ever seen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They loved it. I said, man, there's no fake <laughs> blood capsules. Like, Because they had blood capsules, you know, they'd bite and have yeah. all that stuff. I said, this is real. I'm a jazz musician. We do it for real. 
But um, <laughs> look, apart from that incident, I did use too much pressure when I played early on. I puffed my cheeks out like dizzy, and I blew really hard, and occasionally you'd sort of tear something, and you'd mm. soldier on. But the mm. worst thing that ever happened to me was I bit into a hot pizza, and some cheese stuck to my lip and burnt my lip, and I got a blister on my lip, and that was very hard to play. <sighs> Right. After those early days, where's some wood I can touch? Touch wood. Uh, <laughs> I've never injured myself playing in any way, shape, or form. I found a, a way to do it that's that's just nice and you know easy. I mean, it's hard work. Don't get me wrong. You don't make a sound like that on the trumpet taking it easy, but it doesn't hurt. You know, and um, and there's just got to have this real relaxed thing where you push lots of air through the horn, but unrestricted. And uh, that's, uh, you know, and, and I drive the horn with air, not with my lips. If I want it to go up, I speed the air up. I don't try and create mm. more pressure. You just speed mm. the air up and, and your lips will vibrate faster and up she goes. So, um, you know, and you want you want to be louder, let more air through the horn. You know, mm. don't, don't create pressure. So I've never, I don't know when I last injured myself, but, you know, it was very early on, I, you know, probably by the age of 20. I've never hurt myself again playing. And same with any other instrument, you know, playing piano or playing double bass or playing anything. Mm. Uh, people, you know, play too much and get, you know, um, tendonitis and all sorts of things like that. I just have always found a way of doing whatever I'm doing where you remain really relaxed while you do it. It seems to be the key to be really relaxed. You can still put a lot of energy into it. I mean, I'm an energetic player, but it's with this really relaxed sort of feeling. And, um, yeah, and you don't hurt yourself. Let's hope you don't hurt your fingers building that bloody houseboat. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I've cut a finger. That's why I asked you if you. That's why I asked you if you're all right with the tools. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did. I did. I did something. I'm trying to think what it was. I think I cut it, but I my my um you know pointer finger on my right hand. So your first valve mm-hmm. finger, and it got all bandaged up. And there's no way I can put it on a valve. So I just moved to the next three fingers. You know, no problem at all. Um, so, yeah, right. as long as you've got three fingers, it doesn't matter which three. You can pretty much play trumpet with any three fingers, you know, as long as you've got them. And um, I've never, you know, again, touch wood, I've never broken an arm or any bones at all or anything like that, so I've never had to deal with that playing. The, the things I have had to deal with, I've had some gigs, a couple of gigs that I remember where I was certainly um, in, in, in a lot of uh, distress one of them was the um, one of the last gigs I did or tours I did. It was October 2019, just before all this COVID hit in the start of 20, and I was um, in Brazil. And I, I was passing through Chile on the way there. I got bitten by a Chilean recluse spider, which is their version of the Black Widow, only much more deadly. And wow. the hospital, I got taken to hospital, and the hospital I was in, a woman had died from the same spider the week before, they told me, because I was sort of, I, I went to checked out, and they said, you're not going anywhere. Oh, you're shit. fighting for your life. I'm going, what? But, man, the pain was unbelievable, and uh, that was crazy. And I had to do a gig. Before I went into hospital, I got bitten, and I did a gig that night, and then I went into hospital the next morning. Um, I should have gone in that night after the gig. I had a very bad night. Um, I, I, I passed out. Uh, in my hotel room and fell through a glass table. <laughs> they found me in the morning when they broke into the room <laughs> and took me to hospital. Yeah, so that was pretty dramatic. But I had to play a big band gig and I'd been bitten by this venomous spider and um, I had to do it sitting down. I couldn't stand up. So I'm in this Ugh. chair at the front of a big band playing a gig and I'm sweating like crazy and I'm overheating and I'm just drenched and I had the shakes and all sorts of stuff. 
But it was really weird. As long as I played hard, as long as I kept playing, I was okay. As soon as I stopped playing to talk to the audience, I was I was dead. You know, so it was a that was that was a tough gig. Um, not not so much an injury, but uh, certainly uh, made it hard to play. I read something today. Um, trumpet players, when they've got a cold, mm. um, they can have issues where you know you you've got all that sort of pressure build up and you, yeah, know, yeah. you know if you've got a you've got a blocked nose and you you know you go and blow your nose that 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 stuff can go and block your ears up have you ever had that i've of course had colds i don't get many fortunately i've never really had many mm. many but but if you get a cold and you get that blocked up thing and you got to play weirdly when it's time to play as the gig comes it's like it goes away it's like you clear up for the yeah, gig right and then it comes back worse afterwards. I mean, you die after the gig. You need to be carried, you know, into your hotel room. But while the gig's on, and I'd again, I've read some things about that. You know, it's 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 akin to not as dramatic, but akin to that thing where you know there's a life and death situation, and someone picks something heavy up off someone that they couldn't normally lift. You know, yeah. uh, it's kind of like that. You got to play the gig. You just, I don't know, sickness just disappears for those couple of hours while you play. It's certainly a pay for it, though. I do. I have noticed that it comes back worse. It's like you got to make up for the the two hours you yeah. had off. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you wouldn't want to play the trumpet really hard if your head's blocked. That could be quite dangerous. You could burst an eardrum or do all sorts of things. Yeah. What's some other challenges that trumpet, brass, saxophone you would normally encounter at a gig? That are like unique challenges, like to those instruments, as opposed to you know. Well, they're exactly very innovating. I mean, particularly the trumpet, the way I play it is quite innovating. And, I, I mean, earlier in this uh, cast I mentioned uh, Scott Tinkler. So he's a mm. really energetic player too. And, I mean, the rest of us trumpeters sometimes look at him. I've stood there with other trumpeters watching and we've gone, what the hell, like, how, how is he still playing? Because yeah. he can really put some air through the horn and really has a lot of endurance. And to play the trumpet that way and, and the way I play it too is is very innovating physically. And so one of your challenges is not just like a piano player might think about their fingers, you know, or, or a singer might think about their voice or or whatever. Um, it's just your whole body. You need to just feel energetic. If you're feeling a bit tired or a bit under the weather or whatever, it doesn't matter how your lips are, you know, or your fingers or whatever, you're not going to be able to play the trumpet. Um, yeah, it's, it's a whole body thing. And so you need to feel energetic. You need to feel like you could go for a run sort of thing. You know that feeling when you get mm. up and you go, I, I couldn't run now? Well, you couldn't play the trumpet either. You've got to feel the energy. And um, I know there's a lot of adrenaline when you play, I'm sure. I think that's part of probably why colds and things disappear, you sort of get an adrenaline shot um, mm. while you play. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges with that instrument is just feeling generally fit and up for it. And uh, it's a real drag to try and play that instrument, uh, particularly the trumpet, but a lot of wind instruments, if you're just feeling tired or you're really, you know, wasted because mm. you've been, you know, just gotten off a 26-hour flight and they take you to a mm. big band gig. I've done that a number of times. I flew to Russia for a gig and um, I flew from Adelaide to Russia and then straight back into Brisbane for a gig. When I say straight back in, I landed in Russia was 62 hours travelling to get there from Adelaide and get back to Brisbane. And all I did was land, get taken to the gig, play the gig, and then taken back to the airport and get, which is in Moscow, 
And man, like I was in space on that gig. I don't know how I did yeah. it. But you just kind of rise to the occasion and then get back on the plane and just fall in a heap. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's good fun. And I've got to say, yeah. people say, how do you get the energy to play like that? Sometimes they, they've said that. And I go, I'm not sure whether I get the energy to play like that or whether the energy comes from playing like that mm. and being in front of an audience, you know, and, and making music. The music itself energizes you. Mm. And there are definitely times where if you'd said to me, okay, get up and go for a run around the block, I wouldn't be able to, and yet I could play the trumpet and burn more energy doing it. And it's just the music does that to you. Mm. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, and the music and the, and the, the connection with the audience too. There's a huge thing about the energy of the audience. Does that happen often where you're at a gig and just everything comes together? Like, Everything you do, everything your band does, the crowd, the sound, just everything. I mean, they're, they're, they're gigs that don't happen often to many people, I, I believe. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. Look, I'm yeah. I'm really lucky that that's a fairly common occurrence. Not always. Right. We have times where the sound is just abominable and you can't deal with, get around it. You have times where you're booked for a certain sort of gig where the audience is tough, you know. That's the one where the audience isn't there for you, you know. Um, they haven't come to a jazz performance or they haven't come to hear you play. That's where, you know, you're booked for, I don't know, New Year's Eve or something, you know, and they're there for another reason. And sometimes right. it's be tough to sort of connect with the audience. But if I'm going to do a concert and it's my concert, automatically everyone in the room wants to hear me play and how I play. Well, they wouldn't have come. So you've got this thing of everyone's coming saying, go on, do that thing you do, and what you're trying to do is do that thing you do. So with that sort of setup, and then with many, many years of experience, you know, sound problems and that, that's, the, you know, they're, they're not so common now. Um, we know how mm. to deal with those. And then the band, I mean, that's about having people of like mind who want to create the thing that you're wanting to create, who want to, you know, do, do the same sort of thing. And if you've got your own band there and that's you've got that going, now, that's got to be taken care of. You don't take that for granted. With my quartet, um, we play a lot of cards. And we'll actually arrive. No one says anything. We haven't said, oh, we should play cards because it'll help the gig. It's not like something we worked out. But I'm aware that we'll walk into a band room and someone will just pull out a deck and start dealing. And we'll sit down and we'll play these games. And it's it's um, it starts this dialogue and this repartee between us. And there's, you know, if there's people you play cards with often or hang out with and play games with often, you get to, everyone knows everyone's personality and you you know you've got the sort of mm. um, things that happen that kind of gets us into the swim because we might have just come off a flight or come off um, you know driving or anything and everyone might have just met at the gig or even if we're traveling together if you're on a plane you're not all sitting there talking the whole time mm. um, and you arrive at the gig and it's all been frantic and now you need to become one before you go on stage that's just how we do it we sit down and play a game of cards you've got to look at each other and you've got to think about what's he thinking what's he got? And something about that, and I know some promoters and some venue managers that have looked and gone, wow, you guys are really into cards. Like you're on in two minutes and you're all sitting there playing cards, <laughs> not like talking about the music or getting ready. And one I had a chat with, I said, no, no, no. I said, we are. We're actually, we're actually starting something and coming together. And then we just take that onto stage and put down the cards and pick up the instruments. Because the stage right now, you don't need to like be getting the instrument ready. Like I can pick a trumpet up out of a case and just play it. So it's more to get the band feeling good and get the, the dialogue going. 
and you just take that onto the stage. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. And the band hanging out mm. is really important when you're on the road. You know, those bands where everyone finishes playing and then goes back to their room or goes off with other friends or something, they're not going to be the best bands. You'll find really great bands, the gig will finish, they go, what are we doing now? Whose mm. room are we going to, to, you know, have a cook-up and, um, and, uh, and hang out or whatever, you know, and, and doing things together um, very much makes a difference. Um, they just, you know, colloquially call it the hang. The band needs to do mm. the hang so they can go on stage and play like they are a family. And that's that's really yeah. important. And the more you do that, as I'm aware that not every musician gets to do that. You know, they've they've got to pull a band together for a gig. They have other things going on, or they have, might have to use different musicians. I guess that's why I say I'm lucky that I have a large proportion of gigs where everything comes together because I am with my band. Because you know, I am with my audience. You know, there's a setup. It should work. <laughs> now you're a multi instrumentalist, trumpets. You play all the brass saxophones, you play double bass, you play piano. Um, what I can't get my head around is how you could, like at, at you know, in one show you'd be playing a trumpet, then you'd be on the piano, then you'll be on a trombone, you might be on some other other brass, you know, all in, in this, the, the case of that one gig. Yep. When you go from instrument to instrument, particularly with the, with the brass and the saxophones and that kind of thing, all those different instruments have a have their own sonic space. Um, there's yep. c- certain notes that can you know that that um, are to be played and what are not to be played. How do how have you developed that? So when you pick up each individual instrument, you know exactly what to be playing on that instrument at, at that time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Mm. There, there, there are two answers to that. There are two things that, that go to that. Um, the, I'll take the, the sort of simpler one first. The simple one is asking me that question is is similar to asking most musicians, how do you play a ballad? And all that vibe that a ballad has, you know, it's really introspective, it's gentle, and then suddenly play an up-tempo number and something loud because that often happens. You know, they'll, they'll put a ballad, then they'll do something up. How do you switch moods so quickly? How do you do that? And, of course, the answer would be something along the lines of, well, you just get into the headspace of a ballad. You go, now we're going to play a ballad. We're going to slow. How often has someone said on stage, we're going to slow things down now or we're going to get, you know, we're going to get gentle now, we're going to do this. And uh, and then they say, okay, we're going to ramp it up now, we're going to do a blah, 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 and then you, you they hit it. And whilst that's great and it, it's, it's wonderful to, to experience, no one sort of sits back going, well, how do they do that? You sort of go, well, they just said we're going to do this now, we're going to do that. So for me, the instruments, the different space they occupy is like that. That's the simple answer. The other thing, though, that is definitely also part of it is I don't get too attached to the instrument physically or technically. It would be too hard. If you were to think about how you play a trumpet and what's going on and be really connected with that and aware of it, then it would be very hard to just switch to a trombone or a mm, piano. Okay. Um, I'm connected to what effect is this music having on the people in the room, meaning us, the band, the audience, we're all in this together. I don't draw a big line f- between the band and the audience too. Like, oh, we're performing for them and they're listening to us. It's like, no, we're all experiencing this music. Okay, some of us happen to be holding instruments and making the sounds, but we're all experiencing the music. We're all getting this feeling from the music that's happening. 
And so that's where I'm at. And so the difference between me at the piano and the bass player at the bass is minimal. It's not even between me playing piano and saxophone. In between me and the other musicians, I'm hearing his bass, I'm feeling it. And then I hear the piano and I'm feeling it. The fact that I'm sitting at the piano is kind of beside the point or a minor detail. And so you can see if that's a minor detail, the difference between me and another musician and even between me and the audience, I feel like I'm in the audience most of the time, like I'm just experiencing this music. Um, then the difference between a couple of pieces of pipe, you know, one's got buttons like this and one's got buttons like that is so far away from what's really happening. It's right. really not much consequence. Um, now, that doesn't mean I ignore it. I very much am connected to the sound of the trombone when I'm playing it and what it should do, if you know what I mean, should in inverted yep. commas, like what would I like a trombone to do now as opposed to a bass yep. or a trumpet. or a, but, but that's quite divorced from the... Um, the technicalities of playing it. And that means you can just be with the sound because no human being has any trouble listening to a trombone and then listening to a saxophone and getting right into it going, Oh wow. I mean, who hears a beautiful saxophone sound come on, on a, on a, a gig or a recording and goes, Oh, hang on. I'm not ready to listen to that. Cause I was just listening to a trombone. I can't switch that quickly. You know, you go, Oh wow. Listen to that. You just embrace it. Mm. You know, And uh, it's the same playing it, just embrace the sound, really connect to it. And, and I do, almost literally ask myself the question what would i like it to do now if i was listening to this what would it do now and that's what it does <laughs> so and and that's both the instrument i'm holding and usually the instrument that the other people are playing because we're a band and we're connected and yeah usually i go oh, if the bass player only did this now and he does mm. you know and um, that's not that it's not without its surprises where he does something you go wow i didn't hear that coming but, um, but hey, every jazz musician will tell you that happens with the instrument they're holding. Yeah. How often are they playing? And they go, wow, I didn't hear that coming. You know, that's, that's a good gig. Mm. <laughs> so you, you play the, the brass, the bass, the piano. What about guitar and drums? Have you ever thought or ever tried to play those instruments? Or I, I, I play some guitar. Okay. I, I don't do it on the gig because I've always had guitarists in my band. I rarely have played like piano, bass, and drums, nearly always guitar, bass, and drums, and then, you know, what other horns and things you add. Mm-hmm. Even my big band doesn't have a pianist in it, has a, a guitarist. Okay. Uh, that's probably because I play piano and I want to wander over to the piano. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't play guitar on the gig much, but I play some guitar. certainly play enough guitar to understand what's going on and, and appreciate what guitar is doing and know what I want to hear from the guitar. Okay. Drums... Quite simply, it's probably just a practical thing. My brother's a drummer. We grew up together. We were in bands. There's never two drum kits on stage. So I just never sat at the drums. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, by the time I ever first sat at drums, it was a long time before I sat at a drum kit. I went, okay, I I get how this works, but I've spent no time on it. So, um, and I guess I ended up so far down another path with the other instruments that I did play that um, it's not that I would never take up drums or don't think I could play the drums or it'd be a lot of work, but it's just that um, it's, that's not a voice that I have. It's yep. like singing. I'm not much of a singer. I've sung here and there and I'll sing on things with other people, you know, and I've done a bit of that. But, but in fact, on an re- album I did uh, in 2019 with um, uh, Kurt Elling, talking of singing, you know, um, we were on tour with that album. We did a live recording in New York. And he made me scat with him. I mean, how stupid have you got to be to scat with Kurt Elling, you know? Um, (laughs) But 
the reason I say that is to point out I'm no singer. I just haven't followed that. You know, had I started singing earlier and sung a lot, yeah, singing would be part of it. But um, but there are so many great singers. You know, there are so many great drummers. I'm sure they've got it covered. And yeah. I've got enough things to do. Yeah, and, let's, let's, and let's get real here, Steve. Who wants to carry the kit? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know drummers, even drummers, don't want to carry the kit. I mean, they will because no, they okay. get the joy of playing the drums. Drums are an amazing instrument, and I, I've had the, such great um, good fortune to work with so many amazing drummers around the world. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's just not something I started doing early enough and it didn't, didn't end up becoming part of the repertoire. Everything I play today, I started playing before I was halfway through high school. Yeah, that's cool. That answers that question. Thanks for that. Now, your, your son's... Um, Harry and William both play. Yep. And um, Harry's bass player and, and uh, William's a guitarist. Yep. And, and your sons are in your bands, is that right? That's right. Right. So um, how have you kept their music progression in check? How, how – at what age did you start seeing that um, – well, I left so, them alone. Um, okay. My my wife said to me one day, uh, very early on, I'm talking about when they're six and seven years old and they're playing mm. violin at school. She said, oh, the teacher said they're not practising. We've got to make them practise. And she said, of all the kids in the class, your kids should practise, you know, because everyone's <laughs> looking going, it's James Rosen kids. And I said, yeah. no, no. I said, I have no idea if they're going to be musicians or even if they're that musical yet. They're only yeah. five years old or six years old. But I said, but on the off chance that they are musical, the one thing we must make sure is that we don't make them practice. And she said, why? And I said, oh, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that parents shouldn't make their kids practice or help them to practice or, you know, give them a bit of discipline. Um, but this parent, I'm a musician. It's so large. It looms so large over them. Dad's a, not just a musician, a multi-instrumentalist. Doesn't matter yeah. what they take up, I'm going to be able to play it, you know, sort of thing. So, <laughs> so it's really important that I stay out of the way. Okay. And if we make them practice and they become good and they decide to be musicians, the problem will be that it was something I gave them or made them do or got them into it. You know, it'll be my thing that they're doing. If it's ever to be theirs, I have to almost be disinterested, like stay right away. And I did. I took no part. They come and say, oh, Dad, oh, look, I can play this. And I go, yeah, great, mate. And I'd be the uninterested dad, you know, almost <laughs> deliberately. And yeah. so that's great. That's great. But show me what you're doing with that other thing. And I'd get, you know, of course I wanted to engage with them. So I, what have you painted today? What have you built? What are you yep. doing in class? You know, but kind of stay away from the music. And they 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 are musical. So they form some bands and they got a garage band to get in on. They're playing rock and roll. And, the, and they, you know, I'd just go, that's great, guys. You have fun, you know. And then cool. one day William came to me and said, Dad, I want to play jazz. And I said, great, go for it. And he said, well, are you going to help me? I said, you don't need me to help you. If you want to play jazz, it means you've heard some, which means you know what it's like. You've, you've been to enough gigs of mine. You know how jazz goes. Like, have, have a good time. If there's any specific questions you've got, sure, I'll tell you anything you want to know. But I'm not going to, like, teach you to play. That's not how we do it. And so I said, you know, if you want to know what notes are in a certain chord, sure, I'll just tell you. But I'm not going to, like, give you lessons or not going to, you know. And uh, just if you want to play jazz, play jazz. And so he, he he played some jazz, and he I said, "Why do you want to play jazz anyway?" And he said, "Oh, there's not enough chords in rock." <laughs> that was a, a wonderful, simple answer. Um, and then you should, Harry, you should have you should have told him Harry, to say, you should have told him just you buy more pedals. 
Yeah, exactly. You don't have cords, just buy more, got more, more, <laughs> more pedals. Well, he's done that since, don't worry. He loves rock. He loves all sorts of things. He loves R&B and soul. Anyway, um, Harry then uh, got a, a, a gig at school. They were putting on some big musical and he needed to play the double bass and he didn't play double bass. And he said, oh, how do you play that? And I said, oh, I'll show you. Here you go. You do this, you know. Watch watch some videos of Ray Brown. You'll be fine. And uh, one day he came to me and said, I want to play the trombone. And I said, well, there's a spare one in the garage. You know where it is. Go for your life. Work it out. And I sort of treated like that. And when they finally came to me and said, look, Dad, we're, we've got a pretty serious band. We're really getting into this. We really, we really actually want you to help us with music. You know, we understand what you, we can tell what you're doing, like mm. just leaving it to us, but we actually really want you to get involved now and like really do it. And I said, okay. And I went the other way then. I said, if I'm going to be now come a mentor and I'm happy to do that, I'm your, you know, father, I'm happy to become a mentor to you, it's going to be the other way, meaning I'm going to expect so much of you now. <laughs> like it goes out and they said, yeah, let's do it. Cool. And so I did. And um, really, really, you know, expected a lot of them and gave them gave them a lot to work on and, and was a hard taskmaster. And there was no way they were playing a gig with me, not until way past they were ready. You know, there's many, many young players that I've, you know, given a go, so to speak, you know, and got them up with me and helped them along with their careers and helped them with their music. And, and everyone loves it. Audience love it. You go, look at that young player. And they can tell sometimes, you know, the player's struggling a little bit, but who doesn't want to see a young person there having a go? It's great. It's heartwarming. And it's fantastic, but not with my sons. I left it until they were way past good enough for that very thing. You know, you didn't want to be getting the family up and having it not be good enough or even just good enough. You know, you, I, it had to be so that they could actually really pull their weight and really wow people um, before I'd, I'd let them on stage with me. And then when they did, I said, okay, you ready? Let's let's go and do a gig. And um, And right away I said, but bear in mind, the moment we step onto that stage, I'm not your father. I'm your band leader and they're different roles. And there's no like, oh, dad, yeah, sorry, I did, you know, like you can, oh, sorry, I didn't clean my room or sorry, I didn't put that away. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm your band leader now, mate, and you're in yeah. my band. You'd come up with the goods, you know, like anyone else. And uh, it worked really well. And I've heard one of them actually in an interview once and they're asking, what's it like on the road with your dad? And it was Harry. He said, he's not really my dad when we're on the road. Mm. He's actually my band leader and a mate. He's in the band. We're in the band together. You know, we're, we're mates and, and we're colleagues and we play together. And that's how it works. It's great. Needless to say, of course, because we are actually related, because they are my sons and we are family, that does make the band very tight, makes the band really, you know, as far as the hang goes, it's like it's really good. Yep. And um, the the fourth member of the quartet, uh, Patrick Denau, who's an amazing drummer and a great mm-hmm. musician, um, really fits in. Like it's like he's my adopted son, you know. He's really uh-huh. like part of the family. Uh, they're all multi-instrumentalists too. I don't know if you know this, but Patrick Denau plays amazing piano, saxophone and bass. Wow. Um, Harry plays the trombone and the trumpet. William plays, you know, could easily have a career just as a saxophone player, plays fantastic baritone and alto sax. Um, yeah, they're all multi-instrumentalists. They did get that from Dad. It was like, the, you know, I said, you want to play something else? Just play it. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Don't make a big deal of it. Don't go, I'm going to be a multi-instrumentalist now. Just, they're all just tools. They all just make music. Just don't what you are think it. Yeah. You're a musician, not a bass player. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so that's good fun. And look, I don't get me wrong, with all of that story, I very, very I'm very grateful and feel very privileged to be able to, you know, tour with my family. It's, it's yeah, great. Of course, of course. Um, what's some wisdom that you've passed on to them that you wished someone had passed on to you? 
that that you'd known about it that at at the time when you were coming up? What's something that you've wow p- passed on? To- Mate, I've done thousands of interviews over decades, so it's rare that I get a question I haven't had before. Never been asked that. Never been asked that. Um, what do what have I passed on to them that I wish I'd known earlier? Um, I suppose, I suppose one of the things is that relaxed thing. I just said to them, you know, we're here to make music and like the instrument thing, don't, don't get all wound up in the instrument. Mm. You know, actually I'm wearing a t-shirt at the moment that says play the music, not the instrument. Um, um, uh, so I told them that very early on and I also connected them with how, with the actual feel of the music and the sound of the music way before the technicalities of the music. When we teach people music, I want to say we, I mean society, you know, anyone, when we teach people music, we tend to say these are the names of the notes, here's where they are on the stave or these are the beats in the bar and all that and we write it down and we, 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 we formulate it first. What about just sitting down at the drums with a student who's, the, I mean, first day playing the drums and just playing great groove for them and say, how do you like that? You like the feel of that? Great. You want to feel that? Mm. Um, and, and just get them to play a feel, get them to do something without sort of any technicality involved in it and let the technicalities follow the feel of the music and the sound of the music rather than the other way. We tend to teach technicalities and go, okay, now use that technicality to create a feel. You know, I think we've got it backwards. Think about how you learned to speak. You didn't learn the alphabet first. As a toddler, you learned how it sounds and you learned what it does. You learned if I say, can I have some more, I get some more of that chocolate, you know, like yeah. or whatever yeah. the first thing to say are, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you, you, you learn what it does, what it's for and how it sounds. Much, much later they say, here's how it's written, here's how it's constructed, and what you just said was a verb. You know, we don't need to know that to start with. And yet we teach music almost the opposite to that. We teach the how it's constructed first and then go now find out what it's for and how it feels. So I very much, whether it's ab initio, like someone on their first day, or whether it's with the uni students at the academy, very much say, you know, hear it, feel it, play it, and then find out why it works. Mm. We still want to find out the theory. We can learn a lot from that, but only after we already have felt it. And so, um, yeah, I've passed that on to them and it took me a while to realise that that was the best way to learn and how I was learning and to really capitalise on that. Very good. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, practice, your practice, your practice routine. Do you have one? Um, and how has your practice routine sort of evolved um, as you're sort of getting older? Are, are you... Are you more practicing to keep up your facility or are you still building towards something? Are you still trying to reach a, a technical goal or something like that? Or does, is it not even about that? It's just it's all about, about the feel. I'm not a really routine kind of person. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't have much of a routine with anything, not just music. Never have. Um, and so um, about the most routine I am, which is a good idea, is when I fly a plane. You know, I've been flying for many years and I fly my band around. You do want to have a routine there so you don't forget to put the wheels down. <laughs> um, yeah, before it's probably you a good one. <laughs> or turn the fuel pumps on before you take off, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> but, um, but apart from flying, which is all about routine, 
um, and checklists and everything. My life is very uh, not routine, and so my music very much is not routine. And uh, so I just played a lot. I just played all the time when I was young. People say, how much did you practice? i got no idea. I don't think yeah. I practiced at all. I just played all the time. Of course, I was practicing, if you want to look at it that way, but I was just, just playing and always have. And then once I gigged more and more and more, I didn't need to play so much in a room on my own, and I virtually don't. And so um, I just gig. Now, that's why this last year has been really interesting because without the gigs, I don't have a routine. I don't have a way of practising. And so, um, and you'd think that I'd then pull the trumpet out just to play to keep my chops up. And I kind of had the intention to do that, but it's just so foreign to me. To, mm. to, to, the idea, and this is just me, I'm not advocating this or saying it's a good way to be or anything because there are too many amazing players who have really serious practice, practice routines. I admire them. But for me, I take a trumpet out of a case. I actually open the case physically and take it out to do a gig or to play with people. It doesn't have to be a gig as in being paid, but to play with people, to make music. That's what it's for. And so the idea of opening the case and taking it out to do something else, like, oh, I'm just going to work on my chops or I'm just going to keep my chops up, it's now about my lips. I don't even think about my lips when I'm playing. So it's just such a foreign thing. Now I'm aware of the fact that I thought I probably should do that while COVID's on because I'm not gigging, but I just couldn't do it. I haven't done it. So when I first had a chance to play and did a gig, I did that broadcast from the Opera House, the first gig I'd done in I don't know how many months. Um, yeah, I just pulled the horn out of the case and said, I hope it works. <laughs> but what wow. did work was I was pulling it out for the same reason I've always pulled it out my whole life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was actually on firm ground there. Now, sure, my muscles, um, you know, had gone a bit soft and a bit this and that, but how can I put it? You know, um, if you've got enough, strength and chops and facility to play longer than anyone wants to hear it <laughs> then when you lose half of it you can still play a gig because you had yeah. enough anyway you know so yeah. well I'll tell you what I've lost and this is a really fascinating thing and probably particularly for brass players will be or this will be interesting but hopefully for everyone I thought I'd lose some range you know because trumpet range is all about strength I thought I might lose some facility, you know, ability to jump around or, or you know, speed, technicality, valves, you know, something. I didn't lose anything. I picked up the trumpet and I could play as high and as fast and as loud as whatever as I could the last time I played it. Guess what I lost? One thing only. It's really weird to me that I didn't. I thought you'd lose all across the board. Like if you didn't play the drums for a while, you might lose a bit of speed, a bit of strength, a bit of this, a bit of that, you know, something. I only lost one thing, endurance. I could do everything I could do last time I played, just not for as long. Yep. And I found that fascinating to only lose one thing. It was all confined. There had to be a loss. It was all confined to one area, just endurance. And so I could do everything, just not for as long. Mm. So, um, yeah, if, if I if I cop one of those jazz club four-hour gigs right now, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but most of the things you get to do at the moment are quite short. Yeah. So, um, you know... Uh, I'm okay. And all I need to do is just start gigging again, and the strength will come back very quickly, I can tell. Mm. Um, the endurance will come back. But, um, yeah, fascinating to me that that's, it was all confined to one thing. Yeah, wow. And in your mind, nothing went away because I play in my mind a lot of the time anyway. And that's another thing about practice. You know, um, I find it hard to go out to dinner where there's music because I've got to play all the songs in my head, you know. Mm. I'm transcribing everybody's solo 
or if it's just, you know, music on mm. in the background, I'm transcribing the changes, which, trust me, with a lot of music is really, really a drag. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I prefer, it's funny, people think, oh, musician, you'd have music on all the time. I go, no, it's too exhausting. Yeah. Round the house, round if I'm just doing my own thing, no music. No music. If I'm going to put music on, I've got to listen to it. I can't just have music on in the background. And, in fact, I, I tell my students, and it's a little bit extreme, but it's a way of illuminating the point. I say to them, the term background music is nonsensical. Make mm. up your mind. Is it background or is it music? Can it background noise? Can't have background music. And it's just a way I am about music. It's, it can't be in the background. It, it comes to the foreground and you start playing it in your mind and, and, and you know, and experiencing it. And I don't like the idea that music can be on and you can ignore it. Why would you want to train yourself to do that? We spend our whole lives trying to get deeper into the music. Why would you put music on that you're not going to engage with mm. to sort of, you know, I don't know, there's something about that that sounds dangerous to me for a musician. Mm. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm told that putting the right music on in Coles makes people buy more stuff, so I'm sure they're going to I get that. I heard that too. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they say in shopping centres they can they – can, change the amount of shopping people do by what music they play. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's mm. a whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, just going back to your, you're talking about, you know, your flying of your, your plane and, you know, needing the routine and that kind of thing. Mm. I was talking to David Jones this week and he told me a story. Mm. You guys were flying back from a gig from somewhere and da- David was up in the, the cockpit with you and you're flying through a storm and he said right. he could see he could see on the like on the screen like you could see where the lightning was and and the clouds and David was kind of quietly freaking out. Well, I don't know how quietly he was. He, you might be able to say he was freaking. He was, you know, outwardly freaking out. But he said that you were just so calm, collected, saying, "Oh, we're just going to move around that cloud now. We're just going to move away from that lightning." Yeah, he he um he was just quite quite amazed by how how calm and composed you were. So where do you think you developed that? Do you um, do any sort of mindfulness or, or that kind oh, of yeah. stuff? To, oh, you, okay. I mean, firstly, let's let's be clear. You want your pilot to be like that. <laughs> if you're, yeah, that's right. If you're in a plane yeah. and the pilot's going, gee, this looks bad, then you're in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hallmark that's not to do with me that's a hallmark of pilots like most okay. pilots are like that if you're with a pilot that's not like that don't go flying with them again um <laughs> yeah, good point. and secondly one of the ways of being calm in the face of i mean i've been in the i don't recall that particular night but but i've been in all sorts of situations not so much in planes i mean i've been at sea in small boats so i've you know been in very bad storms and things like that and what you do, I was terrified some of the time, but you've got to remain calm because you've got a job to do. And people ask me about stage nerves and everything, and I just, I, I, I seriously, it's one of the holes in my ability to teach. And fortunately, I've got great faculty who understand nervousness on stage and can help people with that. Because I don't know if I can help them with it, but I can only help them with it if, if this helps, which is, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Um, um, why would you be nervous about doing something you can do and you want to do and you love and it's going to be something you're going to share with all these people? Mm. Where's the fear in that? 
And so the calmness is in the trust. I understand, don't get me wrong, I'm not silly. I understand how, how stage fright happens and how nerves happen to people. But it's all these very silly, and there's no other way to put it, they're silly questions they're asking themselves. What if this happens? What if that happens? How bad will that be? And you go, what on earth are you thinking like that for? I mean, do you go on a picnic with your best friend and go, yeah, but what if the food spoiled or what if it's really horrible or what if the wine falls over? Like it could, but who goes off on a picnic thinking that and then going, I'm going to have a bad day because all this stuff could happen. Mm. And it's just not how you think. You go, oh, I can't wait to get there. This is going to be awesome. Mm. You know, and, and that's how I think about music. So I always have. And um, a calmness and mindfulness, yeah, I've always been um, quite meditative, um, comes from asking yourself the right questions and just sort of saying, why am I doing this? What am I here for? Then do that. And, you know, be um, it's a kind of focus so that you don't, um, you know, because most fear and most lack of calm, if you want to call it that, because it doesn't have to be fear, but just getting yourself, you know, stressed or upset or out of kilter comes from firstly letting your mind just run rampant, mm. you know, either still it and don't think anything or focus it on something that's really, really, you know, and let's face it, when it comes to playing music or flying a plane or getting through a storm at sea, it's awesome. It's great. What's the goal here? I've been in a situation where the goal is to survive. That's it. We've just got to stay alive for another 12 hours till this is over. That was a storm at sea. You go, okay, focus on that. Yeah. But don't get all freaking out because then you can't focus on anything. Yeah. Uh, and that, that does come from being able to, you know, to control what you think, to take, to choose is a better word, to choose what you think. And that does come from meditating where you mm. choose whether to think something or not. Mm. Yeah, I've, that's really interesting because I've fairly recently started meditating. And, right. um Yep. And, uh, you know, just in the, the little while that I've doing it, it's just it's made a heck of a difference for me. Definitely calms me down. I've usually got a lot going on in my head. <laughs> And um, <laughs> just taking that, I, I I do it ten minutes twice a day, and uh, it it's enough for me at the moment. While I'm still sort of learning the practice, you know. But um, that's I great. Think, yeah, I think start, it's awesome. you start to be able to quieten your mind. That quietens everything, and mm. then you present it with choices rather than yeah. feeling like things are overwhelming you or happening to you. Suddenly, yep. you're choosing. Yeah, you know how how you're going to interface with whatever's going on. Hmm. Um, have you ever ever been um, a sideman, sideman musician? Like, like, I guess you know from your early ca- career, you're you know uh, front and center type thing. But have you ever been in somebody else's band, like? You know, being the the trumpet player in somebody else's band as as a sideman, or or called up to, you know, just to play a, a sideman's type gig. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Look, I have done on occasion, mm. not not for any length of time. Okay. I've not been in someone's band for a while. Okay. You know, or been on the road in someone's band yep. for a while. Um, one of the most notable times and the longest times I've done that is when I was asked to be in the Philip Morris Super Band. 
So that was with Ray Brown on the bass, and it was an amazing band, and Jeff Hamilton on the drums, mm-hmm. and Herb Ellis on guitar, and out the front was Ray Charles and BB King. Probably oh. couldn't get anyone else. Wow. You know, like, <laughs> it was just like, ridiculous. Um, and um, so I was in that band. So that's not my band, not by a long shot. Um, and what was amazing was this: these musicians are so great. The charts we had were so great. The gigs were so amazing. It was fantastic. And yet I could only do, we did a three-month tour, I could only do three months of it. And you go, what? You don't want to keep playing with those guys? And I go, yes, I do, but I just can't be in someone else's band for any longer than that. And it just comes, I think, from I so much need to connect with the audience a certain way and the band a certain way and, and have this role yep. that's just, you know, the role that I, that's what I know how to do. Yep. And um, I try to be the best side man I can, of course, when I do that. But I don't think I'm anywhere near as good a side man as I am a uh, band leader. Sure. I just know how to do that better. Yep. Gotcha. Pop music, rock music. Um, like I know you played, you recorded with NXS and you've, played with Sting and Phil Collins. So what what were those gigs with Sting and Phil Collins? And have you ever thought or, or do you ever get offers um, to do more sort of pop rock sort of stuff as opposed to the jazz? Um, I've had all sorts of offers and many of them I've taken, as you mentioned, those things that I have done. Mm. And it's not just in pop and rock. I've had lots of classical things too yeah. with orchestras and all sorts of things that, you know, take you away from jazz. Um, jazz is home. Yep. But for me, I like what Louis Armstrong said when they asked him, you know, what do you think of rock music? And I don't forget what he answered right away. It wasn't important. He said something and then the, the interviewer said, no, no, I mean, is it good music or is it bad music? They wanted him to say something controversial. Right. And he said, oh, he said, there's no such thing as good and bad music, just good and bad musicians. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I mean... You hear some bad jazz musicians, you're hearing bad music. Yeah. You hear some bad rock musicians or some bad classical musicians, you know, the, the music doesn't really work. Wonderful musicians, doesn't matter what style they're playing. I've heard incredible bluegrass musicians and, um, of course, rock, many, and, and pop and, and classical and, you know, I've heard amazing polka musicians. Now, I don't want to be in a polka band. Yeah. But, man, they were great musicians and it was great music. So... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll play any style of music. I just like to play with great musicians and what makes them great. And see, I spend a lot of time playing with, with kids and I guest with school bands a lot and do things like that. And they are by no means yet great musicians. Um, and uh, on, by and large, but their attitude and what they want to do and where they're at, where their headspace is at while they're playing is absolutely fantastic. Mm. Not because they're, they're younger in experience, because they want to be great musicians, and they understand they're having an experience, you know, making music when I when I play with them. And so, um, of course, there's a whole lot that you get from playing with incredible musicians that you, you you won't get playing with a school band. But one of the things you will get whenever you play with musicians who are really really passionate about it and really really feeling the music and really want to experience that, that doesn't matter whether it's Sting or whether it's you know a, a primary school band. Mm. Now, um, and the reverse is true too. You can be with some of the most skilled musicians on earth. Occasionally, sadly, not very often, I've gotten with some very, very, you know, top musicians in their field. But for whatever reason, they weren't into the project. 
you know, that can happen when you've got an orchestra that gets booked for something and some people in the orchestra just aren't into it. Right. They've got to do it because it's their job. Now, they're great musicians, you know, but they're not into it that day. And it shows. You know, it's, that's not that's not so great. So um, I'd much rather play with a pop band who are really into it than a jazz band who aren't. Um, so, but home is jazz, absolutely. Mm. Um, but I'd be, I'm, I'm interested in playing all sorts of things. I mean, just two days ago, one of the things I did do is go and guest on an album that's more, I don't even know how to characterize it um, stylistically. Mm. It's got country, country and pop in it. Mm. You know, and it was great. They needed a trumpet solo on something, and it was good. And good musicians. Have you ever been a ghost musician on an album or a soundtrack? Yes, I have. Not not often, but a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that by, um, is that by is that by choice of the artist or whoever books you that they don't they don't want people to know that it's you, or do, is is that you making that decision, saying, "Oh, please don't." Don't put my name on it. I'm not sure that it was either of those things. Okay. I certainly, I don't think I'd be ever saying don't put my name on it. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm prepared to do it, then I don't mind if my name's on it. Of course. And I don't think anyone's ever wanted me to play and not use my name. It's usually the other way around. Yep. Uh, no, I think it happened because um, I'm trying to, oh, I know how it came about. They'd finished this project and something went wrong and it hadn't worked and they needed it fixed. And they said, can you just drop down the horn section on this? And so I put down like three trumpets, two bones, and a tenor, I think, mm. um, and um, and fixed it up. Something had happened. I can't remember what it was. And, um, yeah, and it wasn't appropriate to sort of say that's all James Morrison. I know what it was. It was a live gig. It was a, a DVD, mm. and they'd had a sound problem. Something had gone wrong. There was rain. It's all coming back to me now. And some channel or some whole section of the desk had dropped out uh, and they'd lost the horn section that right. was on stage on this on this R&B thing. And so they um, the band was out on the road and they said, could you go into the studio and replace the horn section to go with this vision? So you couldn't say on the thing, that's James Morrison, because it went with this vision of all these other people. Right, right. So I was a ghost. I just I just played for them. Okay, and um and and they did the movements. It's the best I've ever looked, mate. <laughs> it's like it's like now I can't see you. You look awesome. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what we mean by that is um the the service that we're using, the bandwidth on James's ends a little bit too slow. That's not letting the camera load. So um <clears throat> yeah um. I was going to ask you a little bit earlier, um, but that's just re- that qu- like that um, question's just reminded me of it. Your way of approaching recordings, like in a band environment. So if you're going in and recording a studio album of your band or um, quartet, such and such, are you? Um, do you guys go in and try and play it live, and are you looking for? a whole complete take or are you sort of happy to these days with, you know, modern recording and pro tools and all that sort of stuff, cut and paste and all that. Are you happy to just go in and do um, songs and sections and then sort of put them together? Or are you still that sort of that old school trying to get that whole take in one go? Look, firstly, 
definitely the whole take, definitely the music, because jazz often it's very hard to do things in pieces, you know, because yep. there's there's energy flowing and conversations happening, you know, musically between people, and there's hard to drop in on those. Okay. So in the first instance, yeah, not just the take, the gig, right? You know, like like I often will go in and we'll just let's play all these tunes, and someone will go, oh, we could do a better one of those, and I go, but that's the one we did. Okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> um. Maybe at the end we'll do that one again, yep. see if it's better. But I certainly don't stop and go, let's do four takes of this and try and get it right. Um, I, I prefer not to do that. Mm. Having said that, I'm no Luddite. I love technology. And if you've got a great take that's feeling wonderful, but in the middle of it there's a problem, like, you know, the guitarist moved and kicked his the mic that's on his amp or something and there's a big thump, mm. oh, yeah, let's drop that bit, let's drop that bar in or him in that bar or let's do anything. Or if, if – and look. If I if I've got a great take that feels great, but I, you know, buggered up the arrangement somehow, came in at the bridge when I should have come in or whatever, or did something, you know, just musically wrong, I'm certainly happy to just drop in, you know. But it would have to be a great take to start with, like an organically full take that feels good, and it's just got a technical issue. So I guess what I'm saying is that's how I split them up. Okay, the feel of the music has to come from the take, but I'll use any technology to fix a technical issue. Sure. But I don't believe you can fix the feel okay. with, with the technology. Yeah. You can't. That's not a great take. But if we do it in pieces, we might be able to make one. No. Yeah. Do a great take and fix any technical issues with the technology. It's great for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So earlier I asked you to choose one song, and only one song that's had the biggest impact on you. Um. And we'll have a bit of a listen to that song now. And um, before I hit play and, and sort of wind it up, can you introduce the song and, and let us know why you chose the song and what that impact was? And then we'll have a bit of a listen. Okay. Well, this is about the artist and about the particular day as much as about the song. You know, we've talked a bit about about bands and how they feel and, and the connection with the band and an audience. This is such an amazing example of that. It's a live album. It was one of the most popular, like, biggest-selling jazz albums um, of all time when it when it came out uh, for some time. It's um, Errol Garner as the artist, his trio, and the album is Concert by the Sea. And Errol tells the story that the band were just hanging out in the back of this car on the way down, driving down from San Francisco via the Coast Road, which is you know, this beautiful winding by the sea, got to this little church where there's a gig on on a Sunday afternoon. And then they played this concert for this, you know, really enthusiastic audience. And it was just special. You can hear it on every track on the album. So I heard this album when I was quite young. I think I would have been about 12 when I first heard this album. And I just went, wow, that feels so great. The groove, like technically the groove of the band, is just something that Errol's band did that's not quite like anybody else. And the way he plays on a song and the way the band interacts with each other, and then the song itself, um, it's They Can't Take That Away From Me. And uh, it just, I don't know, when I, I didn't mm. know the lyric or anything when I heard that title and I thought, he's talking about the groove. He's talking about that's It's about the groove. They can't take that away. And I just felt like that. I thought that feeling, I will never lose that feeling. They can't take that feeling away. Um, that's part of the music. And, you you, you know, it's it's the way the, the bass and the left hand of the piano lock together is uh, is incredible. Anyway, we'll hear that. Let's hear it. This is Concert by the Sea, Errol Garner. 
He's talking while he's playing, is that right? Is he, or is he, he's kind of... I was having a listen to this today real, real closely and I could hear him as he's playing. I can hear him kind of talking or humming or... or yeah, he grunts and hums. Grunts and he goes, and yeah, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's he's it. Like, he's digging it. Oh, yeah, he's he does that all the time. And, and, and there's no way of stopping it getting to the piano mic, so they just left it, basically, and that just became a hallmark of his playing. could always hear Errol digging the music vocally while he's playing. Yeah, that's really cool. What about the way the bass is playing quite short, you know, notes, and it's matching the left hand of the piano exactly, and Errol's playing four in a bar on the left hand. Like, that's so unusual. No other piano player does that um, constantly like that and, and locks it in with the bass, and you get that. It's just like it's strutting, isn't it? It's like it has yeah. this forward motion. Yeah. Now, have you have you ever thought about going into politics? Because Emma Pask thinks that you should run for prime minister. <laughs> oh dear, Emma. She, she, oh. yeah. She said she's she told you that. She's told you that. I know. I don't <laughs> know whether she's saying that because she loves me and thinks that I'd help the country, or whether she's, um, yeah. or whether she wants me to have a bad time. Because who would want that job? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd, you'd be great for the arts, wouldn't you? You'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, be great you? for the arts. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Until I got thrown out, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. You know, I have actually been asked to go into politics a couple of times by various people, you know, involved. And I've always said, you know what? If I wasn't going to be a musician, I wouldn't be a politician. I mean, for fun, I, there's lots of things. I could just be a pilot. I could be a sailor. I could be lots of things. But um, but if I wanted to do the most good I could, uh, it's a musician for sure. And after before, before that, while well, I was in my late teens and I actually, my dad's a preacher and I actually studied. I was a lay preacher and studied theology and was thinking about whether to be a preacher or not. And I thought about one day, I was making the decision, I was, you know what, I don't think that's me. I, I think I was brought up in the church, but... I think I can do more good in the world playing music to people than, than preaching. So I gave so I gave that a miss. So I'd certainly give being a politician a miss for the same reason. I think I can inspire people a lot more with music than I could with uh, announcing my latest policy. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean you don't get involved. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, we, all, we all do, you know, and we all should um, – you know, be be active, and I, I've certainly deal with government a lot, and and lobby them on behalf of the arts and all sorts of other things. I've had a lot to do with um, uh, Aboriginal affairs. I've I've worked a lot up in Northern Queensland with Aboriginal communities up there, and then talked to government about that and what we need to do. Absolutely, and again, I think I can do more from outside the government for the, than within it. Yeah, yeah, very good, excellent. Um. Have we missed anything? Was there anything you wanted to talk about? Or Jeez, mate, we've talked about so much stuff. Um, yeah. We couldn't possibly have left anything out. Oof, I mean, we awesome. haven't, the only thing we haven't talked about is what's with drummers? 
I mean, both hands <laughs> okay. and both feet at once. I mean, really? You know what? I, I've actually got, I've got a, I've got a quick, well, it's not a question. I, I was going to, I was going to ask what you expect out of a drummer. And then, you know, like I've got, I've got three names down here and it's, it's your brother, John and Gordy. Mm. And, um, we've got to thank Gordy for hooking this up too. Cause, yeah. um, he, um, he rang me just after, uh, yeah, just after Christmas. Oh no, it was just, bef- yeah, just before Christmas. And, um, and, um, I said, oh, who do you, who do you reckon I should get on the show? And he goes, oh, what about James? And I went, James won't go for the James won't want to come onto this. And he goes, do you want me to ask him? <laughs> and I went, yeah, okay. And then, yeah, he, he texts me back saying that you're into it. So it, was, it was awesome. Well, he gave you a good rap, mate. Oh, really? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. No, he said, he said, oh. no, we should thank Gordy because, um, yeah, normally out of the blue, I, I don't do many podcasts and things like that, but Gordy said, oh, no, you got to talk to Stevie. This is good. You know, he's, he's into it. He's a real music. Oh, great. The real thing. And I went, okay. No worries. Oh, awesome. So. Yeah, that's great. Isn't and, he a um, He's a crack up, man. Mm. <laughs> he's a good man. Yeah. Really good man. All right, James Morrison, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you coming on the show and um, and answering all my all my questions, be it some of them a little bit weird and maybe a little bit left of centre, um, not oh. stuff that you've probably heard in interviews before. So that's kind of what I was going for. That's great. Um, I love those. That's great. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, I wish you all the best for the rest of this year and onwards. And, um, yeah, hopefully I can come out and catch a gig soon. Be cool. That would be very cool, mate. No, great to talk to you. And, um, yeah, thanks. It's been a great experience. Sweet as. Thanks, James. Thanks, mate. All right. Cheers, mate. Bye.